Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Labour once again brought disgrace upon Rochdale and we're ready to punish them. Four. Only 107 more people voted Labour in Wellingborough than in the general election when they lost heavily. I think Labour will win as it currently stands, but I think it'll be a lot closer than people think. Two. How did you manage as a journalist before you met me? I mean, you couldn't even count. Barely, barely functioning at all. One. We have Welcome once again to Planet Normal, the Telegraph podcast with Alison Pearson. Hello. And me, Liam Halligan. It was a double by-election whammy for the Conservatives' Alison. Rishi Sunak's party lost in both Wellingbrook in Northamptonshire and Kingswood in South Gloucestershire last week. Labour overturned majorities of more than 18,000 and 11,000 respectively to win the two seats. Does this leave the Tories staring down the barrel of a major defeat whenever the general election arrives? Or was there some solace in a by-election fine print for number 10? There's another by-election approaching Rochdale, which is being contested by none other than the left-wing firebrand gorgeous George Galloway, who in recent years has specialised in targeted attacks on his once-beloved Labour Party. Does Galloway think he'll win, clinching yet another dramatic victory? And if so, why? We'll find out later in the show. And in the meantime, co-pilot, the NHS has just introduced Martha's Rule in hospitals across England from April, enabling patients and families to seek an urgent review if their condition deteriorates. This follows a campaign we've previously highlighted by journalist Merope Mills, whose daughter Martha died at King's College Hospital in London from sepsis while being treated for an injury sustained after she fell off her bike. But why do we need a Martha's Rule, which isn't even a rule? Why do so many patients feel NHS staff don't always take them seriously? Also, Alison, the House of Lords Economic Affairs Committees just published a report arguing that transitioning to a low-carbon economy is, quote, necessary, but will be, quote, much more expensive than people imagine. There's a substantial fiscal cost to achieving anything close to net zero, said Olivier Blanchard, former chief economist of the International Monetary Fund. The public doesn't believe he went on or has not been made to understand that it's going to be costly for them. Well, it is going to be costly and that message has to be sent out, Blanchard told peers. There's plenty of news around co-pilot. So what caught your BDI this week? Well, there's lots to get stuck into, isn't there, co-pilot? But I think we can't really launch. We can't let the rocket take off (laughs) without the outstanding metaphor for the state of Britain. Fired during a nuclear submarine. (laughs) I'm going to struggle to read this out. Sorry. Fired during a nuclear submarine test. A Trident missile dramatically misfired. This is a British Trident missile. Dramatically misfired and plopped into the ocean. The Ministry of Defence has confirmed, listen to this, you'll love this, an anomaly occurred. That's one for the planet normal lexicon. And apparently Grant Shapps, our ill-fated Defence Secretary and the Chief Admiral of the Fleet, was on board when this (laughs) missile went rogue. I mean, can we think of a better image for the state of the British military? If Dad's army was atomic, except it isn't. Don't panic, (laughs) Captain Mannering, don't panic. (laughs) We're all doomed. We're all doomed. We are doomed. The previous test, Trident test, was in 2016, and that also failed. So the good news is, Liam, we have a nuclear deterrent, but it just won't launch. Oh, my goodness me. Anyway, lots more to say, but that does seem to be tap into the theme that nothing works, does it? Nothing works. Just before we move on, we can't mention Dad's Army, can we, without saying rest in peace to the wonderful Ian Lavender who yeah. died earlier this month. We didn't mention him no. on the rocket. We did talk about him offline, didn't we, with his Burnley scarf or Aston Villa or West Ham or 
that his mum knitted for him. What a fantastic actor. And what a fantastic show that was. And just the whole cast, I mean, pitch perfect, weren't they, each one of them? And John LeMessurier, it was always sort of slightly hanging in the air that he was Pike's dad, wasn't it? That's right. As well as being the voice of Bod, of course. Oh. Clive Dunn was Lance Corporal, whatever his name was. Jones. Corporal Jones. Jones, that's right, that's right. You had, of course, the amazing Arthur Lowe as Captain Mannering. And then you had Arnold Ridley as that really old bloke, Private Godfrey. He was old (laughs) even then, and that was years ago. He always looked like he needed the loo, didn't he? He was always sort of he was always jumping up and down on the spot. And then Jones was going, permission to speak, sir. I think when you look back at him, I mean, it was just absolutely blissful, but I think gentler times. Indeed. You know, it was the classic sort of British comedy. Sergeant Wilson, of course, was more upper class. It was sort of Jeeves and Bertie, wasn't it, really? That's right. It was the that that Mannering was the sort of upwardly mobile bank manager. But that's right. God, we do miss them. Back in the times when we thought it were gentler times, when we thought minder and the professionals were violent. <laughs> yes, <laughs> absolutely. So what about these by-elections? We knew the Tories were going to get walloped, but they really got hammered, didn't they? They got splattered, as Sir John Curtis, Britain's best <laughs> sophologist, would say. Not really. The word bloodbath springs to mind. As you know, in, with my Velma hat on, or my Velma orange jersey on, I've been keeping a close eye on the detail. So as you said in the top, Liam, that Labour won. How did you manage as a journalist before you met me? You couldn't even count. Barely functioning at all. <laughs> I, fe- I fell back on my talent with the English language, but now, I, now I've given that up. <laughs> now you're just a card-carrying statistician. <laughs> I am a card-carrying statistician. No, but the statistics are actually, I don't think I'd ever hear myself saying this, but they are terribly interesting because what we're seeing, what we saw last week and probably in weeks to come is what looked like last week, two stunning Labour victories. But then if we dig down a bit, what we see is in um, in Wellingborough, where uh, Ben Habib, one of our uh, favourites, was running for reform. So Labour, the number of votes cast for Labour in Wellingborough was 13,844. But that was an increase on the 2019 general election performance of only 107 votes. It's unreal, isn't it? Only 107 more people voted Labour in Wellingborough than in the general election when they lost heavily. And the Tories, this is last week, they got... 7,408 votes, and the number of people who didn't vote Conservative, the Tory vote went down by 24,869. So this, once again, what we are seeing is not an overwhelming, enthusiastic vote for Labour and Keir Starmer. We are seeing a massive disillusion, absolute refusal to vote Conservative by former Conservative voters. It's the surge of apathy. Here's something else, Alison. Unbelievably, you say rightly that in Wellingborough, Labour only got 100 odd votes more than they did in 2019. Guess what? In Kingswood, in South Gloucestershire, Labour got 5,000 votes less than they got in 2019. They got less. Oh, I didn't know that. That's because you're not me, right? You can wear a orange roll neck, (laughs) right? You can pretend you know a bit about statistics. But I will always trump you. I'm so cross you've trumped me. I thought I'd done some really good deep diving there. You did, but you missed the story. The story wasn't that Labour only got 100 more votes in Wellingborough. The story actually was that Labour got 5,000 less votes in Kingswood than they did in 2019, albeit on a much lower turnout. The turnout in Kingswood in 2019 was over 70%, because that was a general election, of course. This time it was less than 40%. So what we're looking at, and this genuinely is extraordinary, I think, is we are looking at a potential Labour landslide. One of the recent polls gave Labour a majority of 312. Unbelievable. We are looking at a dominant Labour government, which, if trends continue, won't be considered to be much cop by the British people at all. (laughs) So they're going to win by default. And by the way, let's not spare the Tories part in this because you were asking me earlier, and I think I should come clean here. You said to me, because we had a story in the Telegraph, didn't we, that the Tories would be doing better in the forthcoming general election if they were led by Penny Mordaunt. Yeah, there was a recent opinion poll, which I thought would chime with a lot of Planet Normal listeners, of course, because when 
Morden squared off against Sunak, you wrote very prominently, and I agree with you at the time, by the way, that Morden would be better for the Tories than Sunak. Yeah, and I should say, because I got a lot of stick actually from some Planet Normal listeners and from some Telegraph readers, it has to be said, saying that, you know, particularly on things like gender identity and so on, Penny Morden is certainly a lot more liberal than a lot of conservatives. But my championing of her, Liam, was I was looking ahead and I was thinking, how are we going to avoid a vast majority Labour government? The thing I thought that Penny could do is Penny could bring along the sort of one nation Lib Demi end of things and also would, I think, play very, very well in uh, to the Tory base, which is entirely given up on Rishi Sunak. In fact, share of the Tory vote has fallen by 21.5% in by-elections since Rishi Sunak entered number 10 in October 2022. And that is basically the worst vote share for a Tory incumbent since records began in 1950. And it's hugely worse, hugely worse than John Major, bless him. Penny's politics are not a good match for mine, you know, but lightly mock me for my Genghis Khan tendencies. So she wouldn't have been entirely a match. Yeah, but you and I have met her individually and together. We spent quite a lot of time with her. We both think she's a very plausible person. And she is a very interesting person in that she's obviously from the sort of one nation part of the Conservative Party, but that is the biggest part of the parliamentary party, best remember. And yet also she has very close and genuine links with our military, particularly the Royal Navy where she's a reservist, very knowledgeable. She was a former Defence Secretary, not for very long, but she was really highly regarded in that role by the Defence Establishment, which again is unusual for a Tory from her end of the party. But she's a very unusual Tory because her background was she didn't go to university at a normal age for going to university because her mum very tragically died of cancer and she had two small brothers and she basically became the mum in the home. She said without any self-pity, she said she used to do the weekly wash in the bath. Not many yeah. Tories of that level who have had that struggle. She was famously a conjurer's assistant. To be clear, I don't think the policies would necessarily be much better now. But what I do think is that she would not be minus 42% popularity, which is where we find Rishi Sunak. And it would be a much, much closer run thing if Mordaunt was PM. And I think Starmer is eminently beatable eminently beatable. But what we've got is we've got a a very weak leader and we've got massive disillusion. And I actually think it's not just Penny Morden. I think if Kemi or Suella or Priti Patel were currently the leader, as I said before, Liam, bring on the girls. But also, while we're on the subject of Starmer and Labour heading for this undeserved landslide, not a popular landslide if such a thing counts at oxymoron, isn't it? But we're now facing a situation today, we're recording on Wednesday, where Labour is in all sorts of trouble over the war in Gaza. And as we are recording, I've just seen a tweet from Nicholas Watt, who is Newsnight's political editor, saying, senior Labour figures tell me that the common speaker, Lindsay Hoyle, was left in no doubt that Labour would bring him down after the general election unless he called Labour's Gaza amendment. And he's a Labour MP. He's a Labour MP. Crikey. Not that he ever acts as a Labour MP as Speaker. He's absolutely brilliant, brilliantly even-handed. But that is his tribe. He's Labour MP for Chorley for years. So he's a huge improvement on Burkow, as we know. So this situation over Gaza, particularly with the coming Rochdale by-election, Uh, anti-Semitism, the poison of anti-Semitism. Now we've got this massive bust up because Keir Starmer, who has admirably, to my mind, held the line on Israel's right to defend herself and has called for a humanitarian ceasefire when the circumstances are right, now being basically strong-armed to try and avoid another rebellion. There was a huge rebellion in November, Liam, I think it was about 56 Labour MPs rebelled and voted for a full ceasefire, including eight front benches. So Starmer is now in a very tough place and 
altering another U-turn as the Starmer U-turns are now becoming legendary. But what do you make of it? I'm really upset that we are heading towards being a race-obsessed country where conflicts in foreign parts dominate the behaviour of our parliament. I'll come on to that, Alison. I'm just looking at a table here, historic table of parliamentary majorities over the last hundred years. Yeah. Because you just cited a poll where Labour got a majority in excess of 300. I will literally eat my hat if that happens. The biggest parliamentary majority I can see in the last century and more was just after the First World War when Lloyd George's coalition got 283 seat majority. Baldwin got 210 in 1924. Baldwin then got 242 in 1935 under a national government. The only number in recent times that's remotely near that is when Tony Blair got 179 seats majority in 1997, the election we both remember well. There's no way anyone's going to get a majority over 300. And I don't even think Starmer will get anywhere near 179 seats. I actually think the election, I think Labour will win as it currently stands, but I think it'll be a lot closer than people think. And I do think there's a little bit of sucker in these recent by-election results for the Tories, Alison, not least because, as you say, the support for Labour was very thin on the ground indeed given the extent of the concern in those constituencies and the way the various MPs left those constituencies, neither was straightforward. But when it comes to Gaza, we're going to see again superimposed onto British politics foreign conflicts, aren't we, with this other by-election in Rochdale on the 29th of February. That seems to me to be some kind of a referendum on the mainstream party's view on Israel-Palestine. You've got George Galloway yeah. coming through, a very skilled campaigner. You don't agree with him on almost anything, but you were very <laughs> keen for him to appear on Planet Normal. We'll hear from him in a moment, Alison. Much to your credit is the kind of podcast we are. All comers are welcome. But he's probably going to win in Rochdale on the 29th of February, and that is going to be an earthquake, and that's going to make it very difficult for the Labour Party in particular given that a lot of the Muslim vote tends to go towards Labour, certainly in recent years. A recent Servation poll said in the aftermath of Labour taking a very pro-Israeli stance after the 7th of October, that Hamas attack on Israel, of course, and then Israel's retaliation, killing tens of thousands of people. A Servation poll says that whereas back in 2021, 80 to 90% of Muslims would vote Labour, that's now down to 60 And in a seat like Rochdale, where you've got a third of the population is Muslim, it could really be key. And it strikes me that the bookies are right and Galloway is going to come through the middle and win in Rochdale. I disagree. I'm not sure, but I think it's interesting because it's. I was trying to write down, I was trying to do a sort of Venn diagram of the Rochdale (laughs) by-election. It's complete madness, isn't it? It So on the ballot is Azar Ali as the Labour candidate. So Azar, is, Mr Ali, is the only one who hasn't been a Labour MP of <laughs> all the other people on the ballot who have been Labour MPs. So you've got George Galloway, you've got Simon Danzuk, who was a very popular Labour MP for Rochdale. He's now standing for reform. And what I think could happen, Liam, yeah. is I think Azar Ali, who's now standing as an independent after being chucked out by Starmer after a bit of a delay, for really quite hideous anti-Semitic remarks. I think Azar Ali and George Galloway could end up fighting over the Muslim votes. And it could well be that Simon Danzuk, as the reform candidate, comes through and white people in Rochdale who think Gaza is used to play football for England rather than being of immediate topical importance. Do you mean Gaza? Gaza, Gaza, exactly, yes. That was a joke that was almost quite good until you muffed (laughs) it. Sorry. But let me just tell Planet Normal listeners a story I heard, which I think is terribly revealing. (laughs) Stopped laughing at me. I thought it was a good joke. It was a good joke, but you just just messed messed up up the execution. execution. Carry on, carry on. In future, I'll delegate you to tell all my jokes. That's right, that's right. You queue them up and I'll knock them out of the park. Go on. I saw Ali, (laughs) who was exposed on a tape, wasn't he? I think it was the Mail on Sunday, caught him on tape at a meeting of Lancashire Labour 
saying, among other things, the kind of conspiracy theory that Israel had relaxed its guard a bit on the 7th of October, or it had basically been been quite pleased about the atrocious Hamas massacres because that gave them, as our Ali said to this meeting, the green light to go into Gaza. So that's an extremely inflammatory and controversial thing to say. But what I've been told, Liam, is that Azhar Ali, as somebody very senior in Labour put it, is not one of the nutters, okay? He is a Blairite. He is one of the moderates. He has been very friendly with the Jewish community and with Jewish MPs like Labour's Louise Elman. So what was going on? What possessed this previously moderate, rather nice man who had made a point of being friendly to Jews and other ethnic minorities? What possessed him to say those vile and anti-Semitic things? What we are looking at here potentially is the shape of things to come. Quite moderate uh, Labour figures maybe having to bend and sway in the face of anger in the Muslim community over Starmer's stance and not calling for an immediate ceasefire. And as I understand it, the SNP amendment that they, I think they're voting on tonight, so we'll know the result by the time Planet Normal goes out tomorrow, the SNP amendment or motion is much tougher. Is that right? I mean, that yeah. SNP says Hamas must release the hostages, but the Labour amendment also says Israel cannot be expected to have a ceasefire if Hamas doesn't cease violence itself. So this is its a foreign conflict that's looming large now in domestic politics with, I am very afraid, some really nasty racist knock-on effects for our politics. It's a fascinating issue, Alison, and it will be a fascinating by-election. But just before we move on, I did want to ask you about Martha's Law. Yeah. We did highlight the case of Merope Mills, a newspaper columnist whose dear daughter, Martha, died of sepsis at King's College London Hospital, no less, after she and her husband felt they were ignored or not taken seriously enough, their concerns, by duty doctors. And now the Health Secretary, Victoria Atkins, has made an announcement. Yes, she has. What they're promising is that from April, Martha's rule will pertain in 100 hospitals, although it is a voluntary opting in, Liam. And it's a kind of escalation process. Basically, if the relatives of patients are feeling unhappy, then they can use this Martha's rule to escalate the care and ask for an urgent second opinion. Now, on the face of it, it does look good. And obviously, we have our sympathy for Maropi Mills and her husband and their other daughter, Martha's sister. It's a completely tragic case. My beef with it, Liam, and I did get quite annoyed listening to the Today programme this morning, is it feels like a sticking plaster on a grotesquely broken health service. And I, I noticed that Maropi Mills had, she's on The Guardian, she's obviously a very successful editor and journalist, but she was very much sounding the note of, we understand the NHS is in crisis, staff are overstretched, sometimes doctors are incredibly overstretched, they can't always spot these things. And Martha's rule, if it saves one child's life, then it will be worth it. But I think that more anger is justified. We have a health service that is not functioning. It's not a health service that a developed country should have. And I just think that this tendency, particularly listening to Maropi Mills on the radio this morning, and I thought, you're being so understanding, really, about what's happened to your beautiful child. And I just think more anger is merited, really. It's a terrible story. But we know, for example, Telegraph had a story this week due to the junior doctor strike, 7,000 cancer operations are being cancelled. Unbelievable. We know what that means, Liam. We know what that means. That some people in among that 7,000 are going to have an earlier death. First do no harm. First do no harm. So monumentally selfish, I think, I'm all for doctors being well paid and we should certainly be training more doctors of our own. But what we're seeing is a health service that just gets off the hook. And this feels to me like a bit of a gimmick. What did you think? I agreed. I felt, how can we possibly judge the actions of 
Merope Mills and her husband after such a tragedy. We can't. But I do think when I heard the health secretary on the radio this morning, it did sound a bit gimmicky to me. Yeah. You can just imagine arrogant medics rolling their eyes. Oh, we've got another couple of internet warriors who think they're doctors. I've come across this myself in hospital situations. (laughs) Yeah. Where I don't feel I'm being taken seriously. And other members of my family have too. We all want great doctors in the NHS and we know there are great doctors in the NHS. We also know there are some doctors who seem to have some kind of campaign of not allowing patients to come to their GP surgeries. The number of face-to-face consultations still well below the pre-pandemic average. And we also know that for some strange reason that we can never seem to get to the bottom of, we aren't training nearly enough doctors in this country. The BMA, they would deny this, the doctors' union, seem to have some kind of closed shop going on here where excellent students with hatfuls of A-stars at GCSE, hatfuls of A-stars at A-level, can't get into medical school. And then we have to import doctors from elsewhere, often poorer countries, depriving those countries of their much-needed medics. I don't think it's right that doctors should be trained at the public's expense and then they can go off and do private work for a big chunk of their career or work like one day a week or two days a week as befits their lifestyle. If the state is paying big money to train you as a doctor, that comes with an obligation. Certainly if you join the British Army, you have to buy yourself out if you want to leave. I'm not here to have a go at doctors, but I do think there is a major problem here with the attitude of some of our doctors, or at the very least, with the perception of the public towards some of our doctors. And that isn't the public's problem. That's the NHS's problem. That's the doctor's problem. And they need to do something. And the fact that there should be some kind of law that allows patients to feel that they're being taken seriously is more indicative yeah. of the state of play of our NHS, I think, than it is indicative of the goodwill of the particular Secretary of State who's announced it. Yes, and Labour has promised, West Streeting, to his credit, has promised to double the number of medical training places from 7,500. That's the cap at the moment to 15,000. Let me just say, Liam, I saw a private GP. Many people now, not necessarily wealthy people, are seeking out private GPs because they can't see their own local doctor for four weeks or with a telephone appointment. And this private GP said she had been committed to the NHS, but it was absolutely farcical. She said if someone came in with a leg injury, she knew they had to have an MRI scan or a scan, but she knew that if she referred them for a scan, the NHS would say, no, you've got to put them on the physio pathway for six weeks. So she'd put them on the physio pathway for six weeks and the leg would still be very bad and the person wouldn't have been able to work. So then she'd ask again, can I send them for a scan? So she said she did one day a week private GP work to remind myself of why I wanted to be a doctor. For expert analysis of the Israel-Hamas war, listen to Battlelines, an original Telegraph podcast. Follow on-the-ground reporting and understand how the conflict is reshaping our world. It's a small country. Everyone knows someone whose relatives have been killed or kidnapped. Palestinians in Gaza are living through a bombardment that they've never experienced before. Listen to Battlelines every Friday on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. 
So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Now on to our planet normal guest, George Galloway's political marmite. But love him or loathe him, only a fool would underestimate his brains and rhetorical firepower. Galloway first entered Parliament as a Labour MP in 1987, having beaten the mighty Roy Jenkins in Glasgow Hillhead, before being expelled from Labour in 2003 for his fierce opposition to the Iraq War. Born into the Labour movement, his father a union man, his mother an Irish Republican, Galloway joined Labour aged just 13 and was elected chairman of the party in Scotland at the preposterously young age of 26. In 2005, Galloway defeated prominent Blairite MP Una King in Bethnal Green and Bow for the Respect Party, tapping into deep discontent among Muslim voters concerning the Iraq War. Building on his long-standing support for Palestine, Galloway aims to get back into Parliament later this month on February the 29th, when he contests the Rochdale by-election for the Workers' Party, once again tapping into anti-Israeli sentiment among local Muslims, who make up around a third of the population in the Rochdale constituency. I started by asking George Galloway if he was surprised that bookmakers now have him as the favourite, odds on to win in Rochdale on February the 29th. George, tell us your thoughts ahead of the Rochdale by-election. It looks as if you're going to win this thing. Well, the bookies think so, but uh, as Imran Khan said once, I played to the last ball, so until the last hour... In the last street, we'll be chasing every vote because we don't just want to win. We want an overwhelming rejection of Labourism in Rochdale, which has brought such misery and disgrace upon the town. And the size of the majority will reflect that, we hope. So my thoughts are that uh, Labour once again brought disgrace upon Rochdale and we're ready to punish them. What's your view of Labour's response to the 7th of October and events since then, George? Well, uh, entirely compromised by Keir Starmer's very belated conversion to, I think his word was unqualified, support for Netanyahu's Israel. I say late because I was present in the room and pictures exist of Keir Starmer in 2015 on a platform in front of a banner saying, kick Israel out of FIFA, the International Football Association. That was in 2015, all of nine years ago, but he hasn't half changed. It's been a conversion on the road from Damascus. And how do you think the British public feels about Israel? The two main parties, they're very, very staunch in their support for Israel, aren't they? Are they missing a trick here? Do the broader population feel differently? I I think they overwhelmingly are. Westminster, as you know, and much of the mainstream media is a bubble. I consider it rather a toxic bubble. And I think in Rochdale and elsewhere in the country, they're going to see that bubble burst. There are millions, millions and millions of British people who are appalled, aghast, at the pictures and video that they're seeing hourly, minute by minute. And yet the ironclad consensus between the two front benches is right behind Israel. That's beginning to splinter. I think the appointment of David Cameron, the first man to describe Gaza as an open-air prison camp, and he did that when he was prime minister in Turkey in 2010. He is outflanking Starmer on this subject from the Foreign Office. Even Starmer, albeit in weasel words at the Labour Scottish Conference, has begun to try and mask a retreat from his previous positions. But too little, too late, I think, many, many former Labour supporters will think. You're a Scottish national, George, a proud Scot, standing in an English seat basically contesting issues that are happening in the Middle East. Is there a danger that we superimpose onto our domestic politics 
um, foreign politics. Isn't that fundamentally a dangerous path to go down, George? Well, it's the government and the opposition that are superimposing a relationship with, to say the least, an extremely controversial foreign state thousands of miles away. It's they who are backing Israel, funding Israel, arming Israel, proselytizing for Israel, and exercising their right in the United Nations on behalf of Israel. It's not that I want to be endlessly dealing with matters in the Middle East. Quite the contrary, as the um, character in The Sopranos, Steve Van Zandt, said famously, I kept trying to get out, but they kept pulling me back in. That's what's happened again here on this. So around six and a half or seven percent of the UK population now is Muslim. We've seen this tendency for Muslim community leaders to try and encourage their fellow Muslims to vote along religious lines. We've got this website, muslimvote.co.uk. Does that disturb you, George, when individual religious leaders are trying to get people to vote along religious, almost tribal lines? Isn't that a retrograde step in a modern democracy? Like the Reverend Ian Paisley, you mean? So you think there's a genuine, legitimate use of the internet to try and get people to vote along religious lines. A lot of people would say that what's happening in Northern Ireland is, is retrograde and not fit for modern democracy. There's a fault in your premise. The vast majority of people concerned about Gaza in Britain are not Muslims. As any glance at any protest, demonstration, vigil, up and down the length of Great Britain will show the vast majority, I'm talking millions of people, involved in endless protests for more than 130 days are not Muslim. The idea that Gaza is a Muslim issue is simply wrong. Of course, almost every Muslim cares about Gaza. Sadly, not every non-Muslim cares as much, but millions do. So, I think the premise is wrong, but uh, in any case, there are no clerics encouraging people to support me here in Rochdale. I haven't spoken inside a single mosque and don't expect to. How does it feel when you campaign on the ground, George? I know you're a formidable campaigner. I remember you campaigning in Bethnal Green and Bow, the East London seat, which you one from Una King. Does it feel like Bethnal Green and Bow back then, or is there a different atmosphere on the streets of Rochdale now? It feels better than that. I beat Una King in 2005 relatively narrowly. A better comparison would be Bradford West in the by-election in 2012, which I won by a 10,000 majority. That would be a better comparison. It feels like that, and it has felt like that from the first week. I mean, I wish polling day was this Thursday instead of next Thursday. If we can keep this rate of campaigning and response up, then we'll win a good victory here. What's your political antenna telling you, George, now about the state of the Labour Party? Is Starmer on for a landslide or could there be some kind of comeback from the Tories? And what role do you think reform are going to play? We, the Workers' Party, are to Labour what reform are to the Tories. And in one of the by-elections last Thursday, uh, you could say that reform ensured the Conservative defeat. And we're going to do that for Labour in dozens, maybe scores of places, either us directly as the Workers' Party or in the form of independent candidates whom we'll definitely support and give the benefit of our experience to. So that's a factor that hasn't been properly number-crunched yet. I think that Sunak is such a hapless, hopeless Mr. Bean that it's probably the case that Starmer will still get in. But he'll be gravely damaged by the time that happens. And I don't think he has the ideas or the dexterity for a king's council, he comes across to me as pretty thick. He lacks dexterity as well as depth. He does everything, you know, a pace or two paces too slow. I've called him a tin man. It's clunky. 
So, I mean, we really are talking about, it's the opposite of a battle of the giants, you know, between Sunak and Starmer. I don't want to use politically incorrect word instead. Let me just leave it at the opposite of the battle of the giants. Do you think Labour's got an anti-Semitism problem, George? I know it's a question that's often posed. It's a question that Keir Starmer recently has often said that he's resolved. Well, I think it was all a scam. The weaponization of the charge of anti-Semitism was uh, deliberately engendered to weaken and destroy Corbyn. And he failed to rise to the challenge. He should have said on the first day, if necessary, backed by his learned friends, that being opposed to Israel and opposing the political ideology of Zionism is not anti-Semitism any more than being opposed to the government of Saudi Arabia is Islamophobia. Saudi Arabia is a political construct. Israel is a political construct. The Soviet Union was a political construct. To be against those political constructs is not to hate the people in that country. You could argue it's the opposite of that. It's seeking to save them from the political construct. So we can't go into it, but I have begun legal proceedings against Rachel Johnson and Sky News in respect of the Trevor Phillips show yesterday. And uh, I will always do that. I've got a certificate from the High Court in London that I am not anti-Semitic. And that's from the learned Judge Edie in a case that I won about 10 years ago. If necessary, I'll get another one out of Rachel Johnson and Sky News. What do you think is going to happen in the Middle East, George? You follow events there extremely closely. Even your worst enemies would say that you have a really detailed knowledge of the politics and the economics of the region. Do you still hold out for a two-state solution or is that now pie in the sky? Well, I did support the two-state solution because I've always been, as you probably know, close to the late President Arafat and his political line, now more or less overshadowed by the Islamist organization Hamas, but still existing in the Palestinian arena. I supported the Oslo Agreement because Arafat explained to me why he concluded it, that it was the best available and likely available solution to the Israel-Palestine conflict. I'm bound to say that in the last 30 years that we've been waiting for it to be implemented, That judgment of his, and therefore mine, has begun to look pretty threadbare. It's up to them. If I were them, I'd agree. If I were marketing for them, I would agree single state called the Holy Land, in which Jews, Christians, Muslims lived as equal citizens before the law. But if they can agree on a two-state solution, and it really is a solution, Uh, then bring it on. We've got protests in London pretty much every weekend now. Listeners mail us at Planet Normal saying that they feel intimidated coming into central London. We're talking about Jewish families living on the outskirts of London. They feel intimidated by these constant protests here in the UK. Have you got any sympathy for them? What would you say to them? Well, I'd say that right at the front of those demonstrations, which are every two weeks, not every week, The Jewish bloc leads the march. Uh, There are thousands of Jews on that demonstration uh, that some, you say, feel intimidating. So, you know, Liam, I was underground in apartheid South Africa during the 1980s as an underground operator for Nelson Mandela's ANC. Every single person that facilitated my work in South Africa during apartheid, every one of them was Jewish, led by the redoubtable Max and Audrey Coleman. And we were inspired by great Jews in the exile who were leading figures in the ANC. So Jews don't have to be 
on the side of apartheid. And I would say to your listeners that they should study more the reality of what's happening there. So how are you feeling before polling day, George? What's on the campaigning agenda as we are now in the final full week of campaigning before the 29th of February? It's not quite the final furlong, but uh, the final furlong is in sight. I suppose we're just coming coming up on the inside rail to what I think will be a famous victory. I started out with a famous victory over Roy Jenkins in Hillhead. This would be a good way to finish. That's how I feel. So you think this may be the last seat you ever contest, George? Oh, it definitely will be the last seat I ever contest. You're a political junkie. What are you going to do with yourself afterwards? <laughs> Well, I'm 69, I'm 69 years old and my youngest child is three. So I really do have obligations to others. Having said that, because it's half term where they live, uh, all my children are here uh, with me in the campaign. But uh, five more years will do me finally. And finally, what's your advice to Rishi Sunak? What would you say to the Tory leader? What would be the Galloway way of campaigning now? Resign. <laughs> it's probably too late to replace him, but I really think he's a miserable failure. I called him Mr. Bean at the beginning of this interview. And uh, I think, although that just came to me a second before I said it, that is actually what he is. And I just don't think that the British people appreciate him in any regard, neither personal nor uh, political. Uh, they, they shouldn't have gotten rid of Johnson. They should have stuck with Johnson. He'd at least have put them in a fighting position. For me, it's a plague on both their houses. They are two cheeks of the same arse, and nobody much enjoys what comes out between the two cheeks. And on that bombshell, George Calloway, thanks a lot for joining <laughs> us here on Planet Normal. You're welcome. Thanks, Liam. Well, there you have it, Alison. He's not your favourite person. You and he have taken very different views of the conflict between Israel and Palestine in recent months. And yet when I mentioned to you that I'd yet know him, maybe he'd come on the rocket, you were keen to have him on, you were keen to hear from him. I wonder if we could persuade George to give up international socialism and become, become a Conservative MP, Liam. <laughs> Even your legendary powers of persuasion would be tested. He is a formidable operator, isn't he? He knows his stuff. Everything you said to him, he has an answer up his sleeve. We could spend some time going through all the things that I violently disagree with him on, but I don't disagree that his analysis of the opposite of the battle of the giants between Sunak and Starmer is spot on. Describing Rishi as a helpless, hopeless, hapless Mr Bean and Starmer being clunky and rather thick for a KC. Who can doubt any of that? I think that he's very skillful and, of course, I would say disingenuous. Talk When you put to him the charge of the, the verifiable increase in Jewish fear, particularly about going into the capital city, the huge rise, 145% rise in anti-Semitic attacks. I don't know who these Jews are marching at the front of these demonstrations in London, but they certainly aren't thousands and thousands, as George Galloway claims, and they will be in a minority because all the Jews I know, and I was a co-founder of British Friends of Israel, all the Jews I know are absolutely horrified by these marches. And indeed, I think that the anti-Semitism has spread due to failure by the Metropolitan Police to clamp down on them very early on. And something else he doesn't mention, Liam, really, he didn't really talk about Hamas when he says that there was a weaponization of the charge of anti-Semitism against to destroy Jeremy Corbyn. It, this is the same Jeremy Corbyn who actually referred to Hamas as his friends. That doesn't tend to indicate a philo-Semite or pro-Israeli point of view, does it? So I think that Look, he's, a, he's extremely skillful and good value, but I think George forgets to mention that while millions are very upset by what's going on in Gaza, millions were aghast by the bestiality and brutality of the 7th of October massacres on Israeli people.
Now on to our listener emails. Your messages sent to planetnormal at telegraph.co.uk. Please keep them coming. We love to read your thoughts, citizens of Planet Normal. We had a fantastic response, Liam, to your interview with Sophie Winkleman last week. Big Sue's. Big Sue's. Lots and lots of people wrote and expressed their appreciation. Sarah says, thank you for inviting Sophie Winkleman to speak on Planet Normal. The passion about this topic really hit me. I've just returned from a holiday to Australia to visit grandchildren of two families. One group are being homeschooled and have no access to technology. The other group, ages four to 12, were on screens all the time. The difference? The screen kids did not communicate, even with their parents, had difficulty concentrating on anything that wasn't on a screen, didn't sleep well, had limited exercise and no imagination. The non-screen bunch were normal children, active, sociable, happy. I feel so incensed about what is happening to our young children. I had no idea that things had got so out of hand. I agree with you, Alison, that this outranks any other issue we are facing as a society. Thank you again for highlighting this as I have felt like screaming to the world, look what you are doing to our children. There are no words, however, to convey my distress. If you have a march about this, even as a mid-70s granny, I will be there, Sarah. And this is from Sandy. As a speech and language therapist, one of the saddest sights for me is walking into a silent classroom and seeing 30 children staring at individual screens. This is a far more common sight since COVID, even in reception classes of four-year-olds. Knowing how tight school budgets are, I do wonder how they manage to provide a tablet for every child. In some schools, children as young as six even have a school email account that they use throughout the day. I was lost for words recently when I heard a teacher tell her class to open their emails and to find the one she had just sent them explaining what they needed to do in the next task. Sophie Winkleman did not disappoint when discussing this topic. She was knowledgeable, articulate and passionate and I agreed with every word out loud at times. Excessive screen time has long been linked with negative effects on a child's developing brain. As well as language development, this includes attention span, memory, ability to concentrate and behaviour. A DOV report as early as 2011 recognised the impact of TV screens on toddlers' language development and how this predicted their performance on school entry. A child's vocabulary at age four is one of the best predictors of their later academic achievement. Therefore, we should all be very worried that for children under three, the more time they spend looking at a screen, the greater the delay in language development, even one hour a day has a negative impact on vocabulary. Children under three cannot learn new vocabulary from screens, largely because of their single channeled attention. On and on she goes, Liam, really, really devastating evidence. In my job, says Sandy, I'm required to engage in evidence-based practice in everything I do. Surely the Department of Education should have the same requirement for schools. Children learn language best through social interaction from simple toys, books, songs, rhymes and activities that they share with their parents and carers. And this is what they prefer. When I let children choose a favourite activity at the end of our sessions, they never choose a screen. Screens are slowly destroying the communication skills of young children, the conversation skills of older children and the well-being of all children. Thank you for highlighting this. Since the first episode, Planet Normal has offered a glimpse of common sense amongst the madness and long may it continue. You really do make a difference. Sandy. Two remarkable emails there. And we have had so many emails about Sophie Winkleman's interview last week. Listeners can, of course, catch up with it on the Planet Normal archive, a very powerful intervention. And I must say, I was pleased to see the paper really picked up the interview. Yeah. This podcast and our beloved newspaper work together to promote a story. Really did. A huge splash. And indeed, the government seems to be fully in agreement with Sophie Wiggerman, given the announcements that they've made since, but we shall see. This is from Dan, the ex-army man. He's back. He's trying to take the crown of planet normal poet-in-chief from Bob the Bard. <laughs> anyway, Dan the Anxiety Man has been inspired by Alison highlighting how many times our Prime Minister says he has a plan. <laughs> Ready for Rishi, writes Dan the Anxiety Man, the man with a plan. At Winchester, the pushy swat, 
elbowed into the head boys slot. Oxford and Stanford beckoned too, as Rishi proved to be one of the few. Ambition's not a dirty word. When you stand out from the herd, the first steps of the plan. A winning smile helped his cause, smoothed the road and opened doors. Playing with the big boys now, the world of finance showed him how to gather riches few could match with a wealthy wife and easy catch. Then back to Blighty, Westminster calls for Rishi to tread those hallowed halls. Safe seat Richmond, not Southampton, far too lefty for his big plan. On Yorkshire moors, bar tat and whip it. But a Labrador, that's the ticket. A barber and some welly boots. Oh, Rishi, not with snazzy suits. Soon it's into number 11. For Rishi, this is political heaven. His safe hands guard the nation's wealth. Till Covid strikes below the belt. Lockdown sage, furlough and masks. Eat out to help out was the task. Cometh the hour, cometh the man. But this wasn't in the plan. Whilst we mere mortals paid the price in number 10 champagnes on ice, Boris's party a hammer blow. Let them eat cake, the press did crow. Bojo fights for his political wife. But was it Rishi wielding the knife? Ready for Rishi is now the slogan. The party's members aren't impressed. Mm. When trust torpedoes Rishi's plan, he ends up being an also-ran. Soon <laughs> hapless Lizzie is ousted by bankers and Rishi is crowned by a bunch of... <laughs> <laughs> Brexit and Ireland, wars and inflation, net zero Rwanda, immigration, reform and labour, Starmer and Tice. The polls aren't looking very nice, but I've got a plan, is Rishi's refrain. But shall we vote Tory? Never again. Well, I tell you what, down the army, man, he's put up a strong challenge there to Bob the Bard. Bob, it is now your task to make a poem out of the fact that George Galloway thinks Rishi Sunak is the political equivalent of Mr. Bean. <laughs> Go to it. We await your email. The gauntlet has been thrown. <laughs> so this is from Martin. <laughs> you love this, Liam. Reading the Prime Minister's Daily Telegraph article at 9am and I'm already drunk as a skunk playing Rishi Sunak bingo as devised by Alison. Ten singles for every time Rishi mentions he has a plan and a double for the headline. Hick, Martin. <laughs> At least we feel no pain, Martin. We'll be numbed to the horror. I tell you, Nib, listen to every minister. They say, we've got a plan. We've got a plan. And this is from Irene. I'm a long-time listener to Planet Normal, proud mug owner and an immigrant from Africa married to an Essex boy. I love this country, says Irene. I'm just getting fed up with all the rhetoric around diversity targets, racist countrysides, and the overall feel that race and colour are now the standard by which all is measured. It's so counterproductive. It's so patronising to relax admission into institutions for, quote, people of colour, whatever that means, as if we're not smart enough. Now, every time I'm chosen for anything, my question will always be, am I just a diversity hire? I had a major interview a while back, and one of the comments given before the interview was, I already had an advantage because I'm black. I got the position, but now the back of my mind is the diversity comment. Was I just a tick in a diversity box? I also now seem to get pointed to social justice warriors whenever I have a project I'm working on, as if I need someone to protect me from this state space of perpetual victimhood I'm supposed to occupy. The countryside is racist, is it? I live in a small village in the Cotswolds. I've never felt so welcome and so happy and wish I'd moved to the countryside earlier. I come from a small rural village in Kenya, and this feels like home. I'm not even sure where this email's going, but just to let you know that we people of colour really, what does that even mean, says Irene again, do not all buy into this decolonisation, another buzzword of all aspects of British life, and maybe the whoever makes these decisions need to talk to normal, hardworking, lawful immigrants in the country. Don't get me started on the boats and the favours given to unlawful immigrants who somehow all happen to be young men, while the rest of us followed long and arduous but legal processes to the letter. Thank you for your podcast that makes us realise that we're not alone out here and there are still people who hold the values that hold British society together. God bless you both. Irene. Oh. Well done, Irene. Wonder, fantastic email. And that's it from Planet All for another week as we leave our sanctuary of sweet reason, our flying refuge of reason views, email of the week. It's Alison's turn. 
I'm going to give it to Sandy, a speech therapist, for her brilliant response to Sophie Winkleman's interview. And thank you to everyone for writing about this most important topic of children having their childhoods damaged on screens. So, Sandy, please do send us your full name and address and a much-coveted Planet Normal mug will be winging its way to you. If you enjoy Planet Normal and you jolly well should, please leave us a rating or a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify. It helps others to find the podcast so the Planet Normal family can grow. And as we speed away from our beloved Planet Normal, the madness of Planet Earth comes back into view. Thanks as ever to our wonderful producers, Isabel Bouchard, Cass Ho and Louisa Wells. Stay safe and in touch with us and with each other. Until next week, it's goodbye from me. And it's goodbye from him. <laughs>